Our text today is Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 28. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we're so incredibly grateful for your word. We're grateful for our ability to come together here as the body and worship you and study it. So bless us today, Lord, and impress these words upon our hearts and our minds and our mouths that we may carry them with us everywhere we go. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. It's good to see everybody. I'm sure you know this, but I am really enjoying the teaching that I'm doing at the Classical Christian School. Things in life that I never thought that I would enjoy. If you had told me even just a handful of years ago, bless you, that I was going to love teaching high school students, like absolutely love teaching high school students, I probably would have thought you were insane. But it's true, I really, really love teaching high school students. I don't have any favorite classes, but I really like the economics class that I'm teaching. And it's probably because I really love economics, like really like love, love economics. Economics is this incredible tool to see how God's world interacts, how, how it interconnects, how, how people interact, how they make decisions, how they, how they deal with decisions. And one underlying topic in economics is the concept of trade-offs. So I'm sure you've probably heard of a trade-off. I can do X, but if I do X, I can't do Y. And there's things like opportunity cost that come with things with trade-offs, but we, we all experience trade-offs every day. There is a cost to everything. David Bonson, who wrote a book, he's an economist and a, and a, a financial wizard. They own, I think, a venture capital group, something like that. He wrote a book called There's No Such Thing as a Free Lunch because there's really no such thing as a free lunch, right? Everything costs something. Everything comes with a trade-off. And today we're going to look at the ultimate trade-off, which is also the ultimate paradox, which begs us the ultimate question, what are you willing to die for? And is it about you or is it about God? And I actually think this is one of the most important questions that you can answer. What are you willing to die for? Because it's going to show you what your priorities are and where your heart is at. And our text this week comes right on the heels of Jesus' rebuke to Peter that we studied last week, calling Peter out for not having true and trusting faith in Jesus. He called him Satan. He, he said that he was a hindrance to the spreading of the gospel. He, he told him to get behind him. Get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus told him to set your mind not on the things of men, but on the things of God. You... People, everyone, we set our minds on the things that we love the most, 
that we adore the most. That's why we talk about the heart. It's where your heart is at. What you set your mind on is where your heart is at. And Jesus tells us that they must be on the things of God and not on the things of man. So it's important that we keep last week's words in mind when we read this week's words and the commands from Jesus to the disciples and also to us. And it starts in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus begins telling the disciples the requirements to follow him, the requirements of discipleship, the requirements to be a disciple of Jesus. And this, I would imagine, had to have struck a chord with them because all of them had, made, had, had followed a calling, right, to follow Jesus. And, and they all had to give up things to follow Jesus. So there's probably a bit of a reminder of like Matthew when he was Levi in the tax booth follow me, and he does. But see, Jesus gives them now this charge with three imperatives, with, with three commands. So you look at it in the Greek, these three things are imperatives and commands. To deny oneself, to take up one's cross, and to follow Christ. Those three things. These are the three things that anyone who wants to experience the new life in Christ must do. They're commands of God. They are not just mere suggestions. You can't have Burger King theology. You can't have it your way. You cannot be a believer in Christ if you are serving yourself. Right? You can't serve two masters. And the reality is, and we've talked about this here many times before, if Christ isn't the most important thing in your life, then you will put something else in his place. Many times it's your own wants, desires, lusts, even maybe thinking yourself as a little god. <laughs> but see, the reality is one cannot serve the king of kings and also want to serve their own lusts and serve their own sin and serve their own envy and serve their own pride and serve themselves. You have to deny yourself. But it, it's important to also understand what denial isn't. You see, Jesus isn't saying to his disciples or to you, you have to give up your individuality. You have to give up the uniqueness of who you are, how God made you. He's saying that you have to separate yourself from the things that separate you from God. And that's usually pride and envy and selfishness. Those are those sinful things, those prideful things. I, it always really comes down to pride, doesn't it? I was reading Doug's new book, and he's talking a lot about envy. And those two things are just... They're just best friends, envy and pride. The Greek word for deny in this part of, the, uh, part of the book means to completely disown. It means to get rid of, to turn away from. I don't own this. This isn't me. I don't want any part of that. It is to utterly separate oneself from something. And so what Jesus is saying, you have to separate yourself from your earthly desires so that you can serve God's desires. But there's a secret in there. We're going to get to it a little bit later, but here's, here's your teaser for that secret. When you actually serve God's desires, yours will be fulfilled. So much better. <laughs> you see, you can't be selfish and serving the Lord. It just doesn't work that way. So to deny oneself means to fully submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That you can't do it without Him. That, that you can't exist without Him. 
And you do that by rightly acknowledging that he is king over everything. Over everything. And after he tells us to deny ourselves, he says, you must take up your cross. This does not mean just bearing your burden. This is one of the, the shame, I think, that has taken place in kind of the, the move into a maybe more progressive church, right? The churches that have maybe moved a little bit away or a lot of bit away from the gospel. Is they, they've turned this incredibly powerful statement into a catchy phrase that's just like, well, just you have to bear your burden. It's just part of the deal. And you might pe- hear people even say, like, this illness, this time of unemployment, this time of struggle, this is the cross that I have to bear. But is it? Now, there's no doubt that you will experience suffering and persecution in your life. That's true, as promised. It's guaranteed as a believer. You're even going to be blessed in that time. Jesus tells you that, that when you are persecuted on behalf of his name, you are blessed. But is that what he means also by taking up your cross? No, it isn't. You see, you have to think about the power of the cross. The cross was the most torturous way to die. It was painful, and it was public, and it was, it was hell. But not only that, to add to the humiliation of death by crucifixion, you physically had to carry the beam of your own cross. You carried your own cross to your own execution while people yelled at you and spit on you, and threw things at you. It was brutal, and it was public, and it was horrendously painful. It was not just merely a spiritual time to place and reflect on the difficulties of life. It was a torturous death, and everybody culturally was aware of it because it was a staple of killing people in Roman life. Everybody in the time when Jesus spoke these words to those people knew the implications of the cross. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, they knew what he meant was they had to be willing to walk in a death march for Christ. To carry the beam that you would eventually be nailed to. Jesus is saying that to take up one's cross means that you must be willing to put everything on the line for him. That you have to be willing to die for him. And it ties right into what he says next, which is follow me. He says you have to deny yourself. You have to be willing to die for this. And then follow me. A command. Loyalty. You see, following Jesus is a lifetime commitment to the lordship of Christ, to following his way of life. It's not like a temporary commitment for Sundays when you show up for a little bit. Oh, hey, I did it. It, it is a lifetime commitment. It, it, is, it is continuous sanctification. It is growth, and it is growth in times of struggle, in times of pain, and there's joy, and it's the real experience. But to be a disciple of Christ, these are the requirements. There's no way around them. You have to deny yourself. You have to be willing to give it all for Jesus. And you have to commit loyally to being his follower. 
And it's right after this that Jesus throws like the ultimate paradox. That's why I don't think you could just invent this because you wouldn't invent it this way. Verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever loses his life for Christ's sake actually gains his life, actually finds his life. See, there's a trade-off. Your trade-off is you lose your life to find your life. So it's a trade-off and a paradox put together, a paradoxical trade-off. That's not in any economics textbook anywhere. You lose something to find the same thing that you lost to gain it back, but it really wasn't the same thing. It's a whole new thing, but you use the same word for it. Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You see, there's this truth bomb built into this. What's more important to you? Is it your physical and comfortable time here? Just living your best life? Maybe you get a big house and lots of cars and toys and toy haulers and fancy vacations and then you can put all those pictures on Instagram so people can hit the button and then they all know how incredible your life is as well and then your job and you know maybe you go get a Subaru with your life partner and you've got one of those kids, my kids have four legs, stickers on the back. Living your best life. I mean, you could even live in like a real fancy place. Maybe one of these kind of sky-risey kind of apartment-y buildings that aren't really built for families and have nowhere for kids to, to go, but you're not going to have kids anyways because you have a dog, and there's a dog park there, and you can go downstairs and eat at the fancy pizza place all the time because you got to spend that big salary money. There's no one to give it to when you die because you have no legacy. And then for what, right? Just to die and go to hell. But you had a nice Subaru while you were doing it. You traded some pleasure here for an eternity separated from God. Like, this is a really big deal. This is a really, really big deal. The culture of the self is satanic. I believe that. The culture of the self is satanic. And I actually think it's the devil's greatest tool. You just keep people stuck in themselves. You keep them stuck in their pride. And we see the rotten fruits of this everywhere, right? And, and I think that it, it, it plays, and the devil plays into this lie, like your life can be fulfilled if you just get more stuff. It's incredible how much stuff all of us have. When I moved in, Kristen and I moved in together, I had like boxes of stuff, like just stuff, useless stuff. And I put it in the garage, which is now the TV room. And it stayed there for like six months in boxes. And finally Kristen said, you know, if you haven't opened any of this, you could probably throw it away. And I was like, no, my stuff. And I did end up tossing almost all of it. Just stuff. I didn't even look at it. I didn't even know what was in the boxes. But see, that the lie is that your stuff can fulfill you or the job can fulfill you. That was the one that I bought into for a long time. Or a vacation or a good social media presence. I mean, people literally sell their soul for these things. I used to laugh at that concept too, this idea of like selling your soul. Most of you know in high school I joined the Church of Satan, also things I wouldn't recommend for you to do. But what made it so incredibly evil, because they didn't really believe in Satan as a, as a being, it's like this metaphorical archetype that allows you to stay rooted in selfishness. The whole church of Satan was all about self-centeredness, hedonistic thought, whatever you want to do. It's like a giant metaphor for nihilism, really. Nothing matters, so do what makes you feel good. Treat other people the way they treat you. Might is right, rah. 
It's all about selfishness. But I remember in one of the satanic magazines, because there's magazines, it's really bad. This is bad stuff. There, you could send 10 bucks, and they'd send a sell your soul to the devil contract, mail it to you. I used to laugh at this. It was even this mockery of an idea of a soul. But here's the reality. People sell their souls to the devil all the time, and they don't sign paper contracts. And they don't even realize that they're doing it. I didn't even realize that I was doing it. I did it with work, with money, with status, with assumed prestige. And you know what? You feel like you're gaining the whole world, don't you? Because everybody's telling you that you are. You're doing so good. Woo! And it, it's like social rewards and little um, serotonin releases in your brain because the things and the likes and the pictures, it's so bad. It's so bad. Social media has done this to so many people. People sell their souls for their own selfishness, feeling like they're gaining the world because people are giving them the likes and giving them the pats on the back, but losing their souls in the meantime. And the damage to people is so real. I mean, it's, it's like a gold-plated road right to hell, except it was pyrite the whole time and you didn't know. And the reality is, is these things, these things that people make more important than Jesus will never satisfy. They won't. They will never satisfy. It will always leave you wanting more. So we're going to talk about thankfulness and gratitude on the 18th at a very thankful outpost. Because the key, I think the key to denying self is gratitude. The prudent person a prudent person who thinks about this and when confronted with these questions should be actually asking the other part of that verse, the question, what are you willing to give to get your soul back? Because it isn't ever too late. That's actually the beautiful part and the other paradoxical part of God's economy is it's actually never too late until it's too late. But as long as you are still breathing, you can still be worshiping, right? You have an eternal soul. You should ask yourself what you are willing to get it back. And why? Because of verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Everyone's going to be judged. You will be repaid according to what you have done. Family, I don't want you to believe the lie ever. I don't want you to believe the lie ever that what happens here doesn't matter even that you're saved because you're saved. This is not antinomianism, like, well, the laws and all these things don't matter because Jesus died for me. Just because you're in faith and you're saved doesn't remove you from accountability. You're going to be held accountable by God. Every single person will be, and he will judge us. He is the judge. Our God couldn't be a good God if he wasn't a judge. I mean, we talk all the time about how we, we can't take vengeance, right? We, we can't go take revenge on the people that are causing us pain and suffering in our lives because we trust that our good God, that our good God will take care of our enemies. And you will have enemies. But you have to love your enemy. That's why the serrated edge and satire is an important tool for keeping your sanity. But for us to have a good God, He will be the judge. The final judge, that's the only way we can even go love our enemies. And Jesus will return. 
We pray this every time we come to the table. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. So he will judge all according to their deeds. Now you know your deeds are what lead you to salvation. That's faith in Christ. But your actions will change through deep faith because denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. You can't, you can't do those things and you not be a different person. Because the true believer, the true believer's deeds align with their words. That's how you avoid being a hypocrite, is your deeds and your words must align. Faith lived out of our fingertips. Verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Much has been made of that one piece of text. Especially when people like trying to fit it into particular end times, theologies and whatnot. The world's not ending, just so you know. But I think John Calvin captures it best, and so I'm going to use his words and not my words. Calvin says, By the coming of the kingdom of God, we are to understand the manifestation of the heavenly glory which Christ began to make at his resurrection, and which he afterwards made more fully by sending the Holy Spirit and by the performance of miracles. For by those beginnings he gave his people a taste of the newness of heavenly life when they perceived by certain undoubted proofs that he was sitting at the right hand of the Father. See, Christ is at his rightful place, which means he's king of kings. He has all power and authority granted to him because he is at the right hand of the Father. And he sends his spirit, gets a read and experience that in the book of Acts, which allows us to have the fullness of tasting the heavenly life here. We talked about that last night. This isn't just about future places. We get to taste heaven here. God allows us to be driving in with Vicky this morning and she's, where's downtown? And then where are the mountains? And of course, you're like trying to get past Santa Fe to get past all the buildings. And then oh, the Rocky Mountains. There's nothing like them. They're incredible. We get to taste heavenly places here. You should also think about why so much of what takes place in the Bible takes place on mountains. Mountains are special places. This today should be heavy, and it should probably be a little bit biting, because this is really important, this question of what are you willing to die for? Am I bought into the world and its things and its loves? Or am I willing to take up my cross and march to death for Jesus Christ? This question is important because it will show where your faith is at and it will also dictate how you live your life, how you live and die as a Christian. We talked about this last week. The thing that makes me sad is that so many of our American churches have fallen into this Burger King theology. Jesus your way. Make sure you're happy. It's all about you. We want you to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How did that service make you feel? You, 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 you. What's the underlying problem with this? It's all about you. It's all about what you want. What profit is it if a man gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? We see this everywhere. People who even some call themselves Christians selling their souls for a lie selling their souls for a career, for a bank account, for an activity, for selfishness, for the wants of the heart, for feelings that lie to them. There are churches where people won't be called out for their sin. We, we are conditioned to live in a world of trade-offs, right? That's economics. Do this, don't do that. Well, God made those trade-offs. 
The real trade-off is do you live righteously or do you live sinfully? That's the trade-off. Are you living for here or are you living in eternity? Because you will be judged. I think the challenge is when we've watered this down culturally, the church has allowed for a whole different set of trade-offs. Hey, it's okay if you do this job that is morally wrong for you to do because rationalize, rationalize, rationalize. It's okay if you sin sexually because, you know, love is love, rationalize, rationalize, rationalize. It's okay if you get really angry and cut that guy off on the freeway because rationalize, 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 rationalize. Because it all plays to the self. What do you want? I want to be able to do this, and God told me I couldn't do that, but I feel like I know better. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to the gospel. Anything that plays to selfish wants will include rationalization and isn't serving the Lord. And it's the trick of the devil, and it's a trick since the very beginning. God didn't really mean that. I see this in the academic circles all the time. Well, you see, if we look at this from over here, and the kitchen, you see, smash, 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 what we really see is that Paul didn't really mean, right? God didn't really mean. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's crafty. And then he asks the words that we hear even today. Did, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? This is the trick that the devil plays. And it gets people to believe that they no longer have to sacrifice everything to gain everything. The trade-offs have been minimized. But the reality is you can't have the eternal life without dying to yourself now without denying yourself, without taking up your cross, without following Jesus. See, family, your faith in Christ must be the most important thing in your life. It has to be because it's the only thing that can save your soul. I, I say save your soul and I hear the jewel song, like who can save your soul in my head, but the answer is so simple. Like It's just Jesus. That's it. That's the answer. Do you realize that? This world is full of pleasure, it's full of temptation, and it's full of things that can draw you from God that can give you short-term pleasure. Now, the reality is, if you use the same things that are approved by God and provide you joyful, godly pleasure, it's actually way better. We talked about that with beauty last night. But if you just live in the world, you, you will enjoy it. it. It will feel good, at least for a short term. And that's why we sin, right? We, it, we don't sin because we dislike it. We do it because it feels good. We want to do it. We feel like we should be able to do it because it's all about us. Anytime it's all about you, it is impossible for it to be all about God. And here's the reality. Selfish people drive everyone crazy. You guys know that. I was a little bit kind of chuckling. We're reading Mere Christianity in my apologetics class. And Lewis says in the beginning of it, I didn't write the quote down, so I'm paraphrasing for anybody that's a Lewis scholar that says that's not exactly how he said it. It's my paraphrase. But he said something along like, well, people aren't drawn towards selfishness. Like everybody knows selfishness is bad. And I think when Lewis wrote that, or spoke it on the radio and then transcribed it later, 
I think that was probably true then. That is not true now. We live in a culture where selfishness is promoted uh, to, to a point where like, people's selfish behavior is encouraged. You only live once. It's so good to see you taking care of yourself. You can't be in faith while you're wrapped up in yourself because it's not actually all about you. Nothing actually revolves around you. You are not the center of the universe. It's all about Jesus, which is why you have to deny yourself. It's imperative. It's a must. And denying yourself is ridding yourself of pride, of your own self-worth, of envy. It's understanding that you can't do anything yourself, that you are dependent on God for everything. Every breath you take, every step you make, he will be watching you. It's true. He will be watching you. You will be judged. He made great music. The reality is you can't do anything aside from God. I, I'm assigning my economic students for their final. There's a, it's a pretty famous economics essay called I Pencil. And it talks about how one person can't actually make a pencil. It takes different people and skills and products and it economically one person can't just do something it takes groups of people it's the same with you you actually can't do anything by yourself if you have artistic gifts those came from god if you have singing gifts i don't have that one those came from god if if you have business gifts those came from god if you have flying gifts those came from god because he's the one that fills your lungs full of air. He's the one that sustains the world. He's the one that ensures that the sun comes up tomorrow. You can't support the true gospel if you have a self-centered one. So how do you deny yourself? Well, you rid yourself of pride and of envy and of the things that are all about you. And it takes active practice and prayer. It takes awareness. What is driving your heart? What is driving your actions? It means fighting against feelings sometimes. Is sin in charge? Have you really turned it all over to Christ? Have you come to the foot of the cross knowing that you literally can't do it without Him? Knowing that you are nothing without Him? Are you willing to disown your own desires for the ones that He has told you are right and true? And if not, then that's your pause point. Don't proceed any further. You need to pray to God to remove these things from you, to deny yourself, to remove your desire from yourself, to basically free you from you. Now, that doesn't mean you're not you. You are. You're unique and you're diverse and you're an incredibly beautiful creation, all of you. But nothing will revolve around you any longer when you deny yourself. Once you deny yourself, actually taking up your cross is this logical next step. It, it, it's not even a question in your mind because when you've denied yourself, you've acknowledged that it's Christ who sustains you and it is He is King and you recognize that it's Him and not you that it's what actually matters, that your life is no longer lived for yourself but for Him, which puts you in service to everybody else because you've stripped yourself of the desire for yourself. You're no longer gazing at your own reflection and adoration and then turning away and going, oh, I forgot what I looked like. Oh, oh there it is again. Instead, actually, your adoration, your adoration is focused on the God who saved your sinful heart.
because he loves you and he gives it to you for free. He knows your deepest thoughts and he loves you. That alone should cause you to adore him. So taking up your cross is the next logical step. It's, it's the clarity and understanding that you are willing to give up everything to serve him. And I promise you, family, this is a mighty call. That's why last night, what I love about some of the things we sing at Outpost Night is that they're war hymns. This is a war, and you are soldiers in a war. And you have incredible weapons of love, and you, you have belts of righteousness and breastplates of truth. I might have got those backwards. But you have the armor of God. That's why we laugh and we sing joyfully and we, we sing hymns of war because this is a mighty call. But it is a required call in the heart of a believer. You can't have half-assed faith. That's Burger King theology. It's the gospel of the self. And actually, there's no good news in it. Taking up your cross is part of the all of Christ for all of life. Life. It's something that's required of you to be in obedience. And, like, how could it actually not be? God required. We, last week, Jesus said, this must happen. Must. Not like this is probably going to happen, but this must happen, that the Son of Man must die and be raised up. Christ, he had to be crucified. He had to be the sacrifice so that we could be free from the penalty of our sin. Why would we then not expect that you might be called up to give up everything? I just don't understand logically how people can claim to have faith in something and then not want to act like it. Jesus requires this of you. It was required of him. Your orthopraxy, how you live your faith out, must match your orthodoxy, what you believe about your faith. Your hands mimic your heart. That's what that means. You can't follow Jesus unless you do what Jesus tells you. And when you recoil from things that he tells you that you don't like, it's you that's the problem, not Jesus. It's your failure to deny yourself. God has made it clear. But here's the beautiful thing. When you deny yourself, once you've committed to taking up your cross, you're following Jesus. It's easy. You're doing it. And you're doing it joyfully because you know he's the final judge. You know you will be judged, but you also know that you're saved. And you know that he loves you. And you know that there's grace. And you're out living it because you're loving your enemies who are trying to attack you every day. I'm surrounded at all sides, Lord. Crush my enemies. Save me. So you sing. And you laugh. Because you know, at the end of the day, it's God who is the final judge. And, and he's righteous and he's good and he will take care of the evil and the unrighteous things. So we should act like saved people. People who have their souls forever. That's when you really understand this paradox. That to receive everything you must first give up everything. And if you think about it, it's the most incredible trade-off in the whole world. All you have to do is give up everything. Everything that you've been lied to about that will bring you happiness, seven steps to a better life, nine great hints to the perfect marriage, 12 ways to raise your kids better. All those things that didn't actually work because following Jesus Christ right-sizes everything else in life. 
because you realize your, your job, your family, your bank account, your RV, your airplane, your vacation home, your pets, your big trip, your new house, whatever. None of those things can save you. And when you realize that you have to give it all up for Christ, then actually what happens is you start to really enjoy the things that he puts in your life. You open your home to other people. Last night was so much fun. Last night was great. Like, what a baptism by fire for Vicky. <laughs> it's great. She comes in, there's all of us, and we're just, and it's going on. And then the beautiful thing was she was so tired, she slept through the last two hours. <laughs> but it's a way to taste and see that the Lord is good. So your home becomes a way to glorify God. Your job then becomes this means for providing wealth and resources for your family so you can build God's kingdom for generations. You don't need the vacation anymore. But if God grants it to you and he gives you a beach to lay at or a hot springs to enjoy, you rejoice in the glory of it because you don't have to have it, but it's a blessing that you get to experience it. The Christian life isn't like a life of flogging yourself all the time, you know, hitting yourself in the head with a book or whipping yourself on the back. It's actually a life that frees you from the things that Satan wants to steal your soul with which then allows you, when you come into right living, you're willing to give it all up to gain it all, then all of a sudden you get to enjoy the things that he has placed in your life in their proper context, and they're great. The food, the sex, the joy, the singing, the, the, the money, all gets to be used for the glory of God instead of the glory of self. See, this is the secret of the paradox. When you deny yourself and you live for Christ, when you give up the things that, that were owning your soul, you're actually born new and you get everything. You get everything. As we wrap up, this is one of the reasons that I see in the, the, the over-spiritualization of this passage that, that you may have experienced at church at times. It's this watered-down version of your cross. And then, like, there's a bunch of promises in heaven. Like, bear your burden now, and it's all going to be better later. You know, later. Like, way later. You just got to suffer a whole bunch now, and then you get some streets paved in gold later. Heaven will be amazing. Now, heaven will be amazing. Our wildest dreams cannot imagine what peace, true peace, no evil, fully united communion with God is like. It is better than anything that our sinful minds could ever put together. But it's not just for there. It's not just for the faraway places. Heaven gets to be experienced here. When you deny yourself, and you take up your cross, and you follow Christ at all costs, your trade-off there, you bring heaven to earth. You taste the eternal in this world. Last night I talked about beauty, how God wants us to be people who beautify his creation. He's made us many creators. He, the greatest creator of all, and we are his people, his image bearers, to go out and beautify his world on earth as it is in heaven. This is why we make the good food, and we drink the good drink, and we celebrate and sing in joy. We taste joy because it is the Lord that is our joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Raise a glass. Because it's not us, it's Him. He's provided us with these things. And then we share. And we share because we're not worried. I mean, think about it this way. If you're willing to give up everything for Jesus, like literally, what's there to be worried about? God will take care of the rest. There's nothing that this world can do to you because you're not of this world. 
That doesn't mean things aren't going to happen to you, but you're going to be okay. Because you're on God's team. Because your soul is eternal. Because your soul won't die. This is incredible, right? This paradox is only something that could come from God. That out of death, out of dying to yourself, out of the willingness to give it all, to be willing to get rid of everything, you gain everything. You'll be provided with everything you need. And so there's no need for worry. Because you know who the king of kings is. You know that he's the ultimate judge. You know that he knows right from wrong. And so your job is to follow his path of righteousness with your whole life. One of the beautiful things we're about to do is come to the table. And we experience this paradox at this table. We experience a remembrance. We experience this remembrance of Christ's death on the cross. That his death provided us eternal life but we also taste and see that the Lord is good. That even in this remembrance, we experience the holy and the divine and we get the joy of the Lord and we eat incredible bread and we drink good wine and we experience the beauty of Jesus Christ in the sacrament. That's why we can rejoice in our wins and our losses because none of it is about us. It's about him, and he invites us to eat a meal with him. So stop trying to hold on to things that can never save you. You need to deny them. You need to deny you. You need to take up your cross. You need to commit to following Jesus Christ, and I promise you, I promise you that a new life awaits you, one that is richer than you could ever, ever have imagined. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for you making us new creations. So Lord, I, I pray that we can be people who deny ourselves. Rid us, Lord, of our pride and our selfishness and our sinful desires. Allow us to be people who are joyfully willing to take up our cross, to march the death march for you, if that's what's required of us. And we pray to be follow, uh, uh, we pray to be Loyal followers, Lord. Faithful followers. And so strengthen us in this call. Strengthen us in the work that you've called us to do, Lord. And may we do it with, with incredible joy. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.